Hey, and I, I brought my, my wife, Julie. She's here. And uh, we uh, also have two daughters. Uh, my youngest is going into her senior year at Azusa Pacific. Her name's Holly. And then our oldest is, has been married now for two years. And we're so thankful that Ro- the Reverend Rob McElvoy married them and did all their premarital counseling. And two years and going strong. Way to go. I'll tell them, call Rob, call Rob. Anyway, it's, uh, it's, it's been great. We miss Rob not being around um, our area as much. I, he and I met for prayer regularly, and now we've let that slide given the distance now. So my loss, your gain. And Kathy served on, has been serving on staff, and uh, I think looking forward to <clears throat> making a 100% uh, change of time here. So uh, our loss... Our loss is uh, your gain as well on that. And I, I love hearing updates about what the Lord's doing here at Coastside and uh, just praying for you and enjoying kind of walking along and hearing the journey that you're on. And that's it. I think that's a great reminder that the Christian life is certainly a destination. We have our destination secured by Jesus Christ through his life and his death and His resurrection, and belief, faith in Him uh, secures that destination for it. But also, the Christian life is a journey. It's a journey that includes all kinds of things that we're called to learn and experience along the way. And this journey, in case any of us have forgotten, reminds us that we have plenty of room to grow. Every one of us has a capacity for God to work in us and chisel us into a, a, a image that more reflects His glory. It's God's plan that we look more like Christ today than we did five years ago. And it's God's plan that we look more like Christ five years from now than we do today. And there was a young lady at our South Campus in Redwood City, uh, part of Central Peninsula Church, and she works at Facebook, and she invited Julie and I and her parents to go visit the campus one night, and man, that was something. Any of you ever been on the Facebook campus? A few of you. Okay, so we're walking in, and uh, you know, first thing we do is we go eat, and I, you know, go to take out my wallet to pay, and it's all right, it's all free, all this food, and it's good food. So we eat dinner there, we're stuffed, and then we begin a, a tour of the campus, and we finally land at this ice cream shop on the main street. I whip out my wallet again. Nope, that's free too. And uh, I don't know if you remember from college, dorm life, they called it the Freshman 15. I think there was a Facebook 15 as well for those who worked there with all that great food. We ended up, remember we got our picture taken out in front by the thumbs up, you know, we were doing that. It was just a great time. And we noticed something about that campus that uh, really stuck with me. If you walk through that campus, you'll notice that the construction, in the construction And in the design of that campus, it is very intentional that things look unfinished, not yet completed. Ductworks exposed, girders, beams, conduit, temporary shelving, all visible. Uh, I don't think my feet landed on any piece of carpet. And we learned from our host that this work culture here at Facebook. It promotes the idea that the journey is never completed. There's always something new to create, to learn, and to improve. 
and some new challenge, some new obstacle to overcome, some wall that needs to be torn down. And when I thought about that, yeah, I thought about the Christian life. I thought about my job as, as a pastor at Central Peninsula Church in Foster City. I also thought about Coastside, that we're all under construction. Our, our girders are showing. Our, our rooms are unfinished. There's plenty of room for us to create and learn and grow. And there are challenges and obstacles to overcome. And there's, there's walls that need to come down. This reality should naturally move us to think more about the journey, but also staying secure in the fact that our final destination is in heaven, and that's given. And the journey of the Israelites recorded in the book of Joshua will help us on this journey. If you remember, their journey began when they were set free from slavery in Egypt. And then they crossed the Red Sea and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years with Moses at the helm. And then Joshua led them across the Jordan River into the, this land west of the Jordan River on the outskirts of a city named Jericho. And they're ready to go into battle to stake their claim, their first claim in this land that God had promised his people, the Israelites. So their final destination, it is defined by the promise of God, but that specific path that they're to walk, and we can relate to this, remains uncharted. Unexpected right turns, left turns, unexplained detours, hills to climb, dark valleys. God has much to teach us along the way. And there seems to be more uh, that's unclear at times in our lives about the path than what's, what's clear. And my prayer today is that something about these, this journey of these Israelites will resonate with you on your personal journey and on the journey of your church here, Coastside. So, a few years ago, uh, I made the trip to the Holy Land, and one day we got on our tour bus out of Jerusalem, and our destination was this ancient city of Jericho, and everything's a lot closer than you, you'd imagine there. Uh, we traveled 10 miles to the north and to the east to Jerusalem, and we climbed this hill, uh, over a hill, up out of Jerusalem. It's the Mount of Olives, and it's this beautiful mount, and it's got vineyards and olive trees and grass and settlements. And then we descended down into what we would call a desert, and the Bible refers to it as a wilderness. No trees, no green, just rocky, hilly, hot it's a short ride. The topography changes dramatically and quickly in this promised land. And that, after that 10-mile ride in the bus, we ended up in this rocky parking lot. And it was 115 degrees. It was July. And we got out of our air-conditioned bus, and we went around a corner. We walked up this hillside to this, uh, and we looked up, and we saw this structure that was built into the mountainside, into the cliff. And the guide told us that that was the Monastery of the Temptation. So we were getting this image of we we're walking on the, the rock path where our Lord had walked for, in his 40 days before he began his, his public ministry. Well, we rounded a bend and we saw some archaeological 
ruins, and they look like little remnants of walls and some foundations for rooms. And then we found that we were, we were standing in what was considered to be the oldest city on earth. They were the remains there, the remains of this ancient city of Jericho. And how could a city rise up in the middle of this desolate piece of land? If this might be interesting to some of you, it was 750 feet below sea level there. So Jerusalem's about 2,000 feet. So we descended down 750 feet, but Jericho was an oasis. It had natural springs that, that flowed, you know, streams there in the desert. And that word Jericho means fragrant, called the, the city of palms. So before it was destroyed, it was only eight acres inside. Its size, it was 400 acres long by 200 acres wide. And there was this British archaeologist, John Garsting. He's working at Jericho. He was working in the 1930s, and he found the walls. He found the foundation of two walls. There was this inner wall that was 12 feet thick, and then there was this outer wall that was six feet thick. Jericho was a military outpost, very defendable. In fact, when the spies of Israel had entered 40 years earlier under Moses' orders, when they had entered the promised land, they were no doubt spying on Jericho, and they became afraid of what they saw. And their report back to Moses was, but the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. No doubt, this city had great warriors, weapons, and supplies. But fear went both ways. The people of Jericho had heard about what God had done for the band of Israelites. And so they had put their city on lockdown. We'll open up in Joshua chapter 6 verse 1. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. So the city had shut itself off. It had shut itself off from the Israelites It had shut itself off from God. They had heard the news that they had crossed the Jordan River, but how could this group really be a threat to them? I mean, they're in this fortified city. They had weapons. They had everything. Uh, And the element of surprise wouldn't work. And all that was true. They were a well-defended people. But you know what else was true? The Israelites knew, as they had seen throughout this, that they would fail miserably without God leading them. And I think I'm seeing more and more of this in my life that maybe you are too, that God puts us into positions where his plans are so big, his plans are so overwhelming, and even may seem far-fetched or foolish from an earthly standpoint. And he puts us in these positions where God must work or it won't happen. And you look at what God tells them at this point in their unfinished journeys, and you look at it and you say, yeah, this is far-fetched. And I think that's a great point for us today, is that God brings down walls even when His orders seem far-fetched. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered. That, That idea of delivered, it's a perfect tense. It means that that victory has already been won. From God's perspective, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. 
have seven priests carry trumpets of ram horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone, straight in. Well, to say the least, that's an unconventional battle plan. No gunpowder, no catapults to hurl rocks or rotting animal carcasses, whatever they did in that day, into, the, into there to attack. And they could attack by trying to climb over the walls, but that would have been huge casualties. And typically what an ancient army would do if they were laying siege on a city is they would starve or dehydrate the, the people over time. But Jericho, like we said, it was an oasis, so they had plenty of food and water. But this idea, walking around a city one time each day for six days. And then the seventh day, walking around seven times. I mean, how could that be useful? Joshua's generals getting that, that command from Joshua, I'm sure they're looking and going, that's embarrassing. We were trained to fight. We're not trained to walk around the, the walls. I'm ready to fight. And God wants us to have this prayer meeting, this, this, this worship processional. Maybe you've been in your, had a situation in your life where light, there's, a, there's a wall in front of you. A wall that you need God's help in order to get through. And it seems like everything you're doing is useless. Like you're simply walking around the wall, but not really doing anything. In your mind, you need to punch through the wall. And I think one lesson for us in this is there's great worth to preparation, to obedience, to prayer. And I know we want our wall down today, but God's saying embrace the journey. There's more at work here than you think. Your faithful prayers are not in vain. Your obedience will not be overlooked. Your perseverance builds character. Let go of conventional battle plans and trust me. The battle belongs to me. What seems far-fetched to you isn't. And we try to make sense of this battle plan. And as we do, as we kind of take this in, it begins to make sense because we're seeing, well, well, this is worship and there's power in worship. And, and, and there were these daily movements here around Jericho. And, and, and then this climax on the seventh day, the warriors, the priests, the ark, they're making up this movement. They're going around. Trumpets are blowing. It's a call to worship. It's a call to action. And then the people are to shout a response. Having fighting men in this processional, it tells us it's a military action. They lead. They follow. And what's at the middle? The ark, the center. God is at the center of all of this. The presence of God is in this journey to lead us and to protect us. And then there's this loud shout of victory. This, that's a common thing done in that day. It's a, it's, a, it's a shout to intimidate the enemy. So they walk around. What were they looking for? 
I guess if you think of it strategically, they're looking for a a weakness maybe they can exploit. But I think what's really going on is God is showing them, there's no weakness for you to exploit around here. You're going to need me. Totally. This is a great wall. They are well defended. And the people on the inside are looking out over that wall every day, and they're wondering. The fighting men, the priests on the outside, knew no way they could bring down that wall. And when the time comes, when it's God's time, the wall falls down. One commentator I read, seven days of March also showed God's mercy because seven days was plenty of time for them to surrender and turn to God. So we continue. Uh, We go down verse 6. We see something else. We see that God tears down walls in our lives when we are obedient. Even when that obedience seems like foolishness. So Joshua, son of Nun, calls the priests and said to them, take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. And all the time the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. And then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the Lord of the Ark, or the Ark of the Lord, while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to camp. And they did this for six days. So for six days, they're obeying God's orders, and they had to be wondering what's the value in marching the same way at the same time every day? I think it was interesting. I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, you know what? The order came from God to Joshua to do this. But it doesn't say that Joshua told his people the entire plan. He just said, today we'll do this. Tomorrow, then the ne- after that was done, the next day, today we'll do this. And so on and so forth. There's no evidence that they knew God's seven-day plan. Only Joshua knew that. How many of us have sat with a a sick friend or a relative or doing some kind of very hard but necessary ministry day after day and we just feel it's useless? Just doing the same thing. Nothing's changing. I can't make them well. I don't seem to be able to take their pain away. Or we counsel a child day after day, or a a relative or a friend who's making bad choices. And too many times, we're, we're not able to stop them from making bad choices. 
but for us day after day to continue to be obedient and pray and to continue to march around that wall, that wall in your life, it's a good reminder that God is doing something behind the scenes. He has another plan, and it's according to His time frame. Things we don't understand, things we don't even know about, things that seem so out of the box to us, and we're just called to prayerfully march again, day after day. And what happens in that time? God's looking at us and saying, some of these things you don't recognize, this is going to strengthen your faith in this time of crisis. Prayerfully marching around six times gives God the needed time to maybe allow someone to hit bottom, to surrender, to say, I am desperate for God. Some crisis of belief that leads to repentance, true transformation. After God came into our lives to save us, Think about this. He didn't necessarily promise to make all of our baggage disappear right away. And if the baggage doesn't go away right away, that doesn't mean God isn't working in your life. And for us to continue to prayfully, prayerfully march around those walls, to march around those walls that remain in our lives day after day may seem foolish, but he's driving home the point that God has us on a journey He's leading people to greater faith in God, greater dependence on Him. God doesn't allow the Israelites to take the city on that first day because He wants to increase their faith. In fact, we'll put up Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30 and 31 in the New Testament. It answers this question, what, you know, what made it work for the Israelites around Jericho? By faith, the writer says, the walls of Jericho fell after the army marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, uh, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she had welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. So our faith grows when we recognize that we're still under construction, not yet completed. Our faith grows when we accept new challenges, both personally and as a church, to trust God to come through. Joshua and his people had faith because they knew God was right there with them. The ark is mentioned in this chapter eight times to remind us God was right there in the middle. And in the middle of each of those processionals, he's there. And it's that great promise that we have that God is with us. And this comes right out of Joshua. The fight we are in is God's fight. It's not our fight. God is the hero of all our stories. Seven priests, seven trumpets, seven days of marching, seven times around the city. On that seventh day, you see a pattern? <laughs> seven comes from the root word shevra in Hebrew, and it means full, satisfied, perfect, complete. They marched, if you noticed back in verse 10, they marched in absolute silence. There's no singing, there's no chatting, not a word. They're having this patience to walk. They're exercising self-control. They're experiencing this building of faith each day. 
And what led the people as they went out each day? We see it. It's the ark. For six days they do this. I love this quote by F.B. Myers. He teaches us on silence. He says, it's one of the hardest of all the commandments. He says, it's only the still heart that can reflect the heart of God's overarching care. It's only the still heart that can detect the least whisper of his voice through its quiet atmosphere. It's only the still heart who can know his full grace and power. And finally, we reach the seventh, verse 15. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and they marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. Verse 18. But keep away from the things so that you not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into the treasury. So again, the Lord's orders here seem far-fetched, even foolish. And following them, we look at it, we're saying, you know what? As far-fetched and foolish as they may seem, when we follow God's orders, walls fall down. Verse 20 and 21, when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. And then everyone charged straight in and they took the city and they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Okay, so on that day, You're looking at going, what in the world? Why why would this happen? Why would everything be destroyed in this? So on that day, God caused the walls to fall down. Joshua gave the soldiers four instructions. He said, devote the entire city to God. Rescue Rahab and her family. Destroy every living thing. And then burn the city. I don't know about you, but at that point I'm asking, why? Why? I can get so inspired about this bringing down walls, but now we see this death and destruction of every living thing. So there's a few things we need to touch on on that. First of all, Jericho was to be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Back in Deuteronomy 20, there were very specific instructions for going to war. For cities outside of the promised land, they were to be treated differently. Verse 10 says, when you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. But later on, in verse 16 through 18 of Deuteronomy 20, he says, however, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, which is Jericho, do not leave alive anything that breathes. 
completely destroy them as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all their detestable things they do in worship, worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. So why the total destruction of Jericho? Because God wanted to protect his people, protect them from idolatry, protect them from walking away from him. God did not want his people to be contaminated by the terrible practices of these Canaanites here, which if you do a little research, just Google it, you know, idol worship, temple prostitution, human sacrifice. I love a quote by David Howard. He says, judgment is always God's last. The instructions to Israel to annihilate the Canaanites was specific and in time, intent, and geography. And that Israel was not given a blanket permission to do the same to any people they encountered at any time in any place. It was limited to the crucial time when Israel was establishing itself under God to protect Israel's worship as well as punish these specific peoples. So we get to the end of the chapter. We not only see this God of of justice, but we also see this God of mercy. Verse 22 and 23. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. And then they burned the whole city and everything in it. And they put the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord. But Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, and her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lived among the Israelites to that day. And the last point as it closes here. And when God's orders are followed, his fame spreads. At that time, goes on to say 26 and 27, Joshua pronounced the solemn oath, cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. March 1st, 1854, a wide-eyed one-year-old man, his name was Hudson Taylor, was a missionary, set foot in Shanghai, China. He had had a five-month sea voyage from London before he arrived at Shanghai. And he faced poverty and cold and death threats as he began his ministry to the Chinese people. He was in China for the total of 50 years, and he led the largest Christian evangelical movement there since the Apostle Paul's movement in the Holy Land area and up into Europe. The China Inland Mission, or OMF International, was ultimately responsible for bringing 800 missionaries to China. The ministry began 125 schools, resulted in 18,000 Christian conversions, more than 500 national helpers in all 18 provinces of China. That is bringing down walls. But if Hudson Taylor were evaluated by his life, 
by his mission, his work, and his legacy. Everyone who evaluated it would say, what a tremendous success, what a mover, what a shaker, and his fame spread. Many of us have heard of Hudson Taylor. Yet the most remarkable thing about Taylor's life was not the thousands that he personally baptized, but the hours, the hours he spent alone in his room in prayer. Or might I say, prayerfully, persistently obeying God's call on his life and circling the walls that were in front of him. Hudson Taylor's secret was relying on God no matter the circumstances. And as it was so powerful for him, it is the same for us today. In a meeting with a small group of missionaries in China, Taylor reminded them that there are three ways we can do God's work. One, we can make the best plans we can and hope they succeed. Or we can make our own plans and then ask God to bless them. Or we can ask God for His plans and then do what He tells us to do. And that was Hudson Taylor's act of obedience and why his ministry was successful. He said this, do not have your concert first and then tune your instruments afterward. Begin the day with the word of God and pray and get first of all in harmony with him. That's how we fight battles and see walls come down. So Hudson Taylor would have told us that his life was this unfinished journey. There was always more to create and learn and build. And it's in the struggle of the battle that we learn the most. And in battle, uh, even God's battle, we get wounded. In fact, in fact, I think a challenge for all of us today is stay in the battle. Keep marching, keep praying, keep obeying. And see what walls God will tear down in your own personal life as well as tear down in this beautiful city you live and serve in, Pacifica. Each one of us have a place in God's battle formation. Marching, praying, obeying God's word, giving God the glory for tearing down walls in our lives and in our community. And we're about to move into communion together. And I was thinking this week about the, the battle that Christ fought. That he fought to bring down walls that separated us from him. Philippians chapter 2 verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. He saw you and he saw me worth being wounded for. He went into battle for us and he wears his wounds forever. This week I imagined, I imagined myself standing before God someday, standing before Jesus, and he's asking me about my battles here on earth. Asking me, first of all, Dan, do you have any wounds? I mean, what, what, what would it be if I answered back to God, I don't have any wounds. What would God think? What? Wasn't there anything worth going into battle for? Wasn't there any wall to prayerfully walk around? 
Anything worth being wounded for? Jesus asking me anything about me that's worth fighting for? As you look together as a church here in Pacifica, I get a sense that there are battles that he wants you to fight, walls that he wants you marching around. He wants to use you to tear down those walls. And with God at the center of that battle line, may each of you find your place to march and to pray and obey. And may you accept the reality that serving God does wound us. It is difficult. So God has me in my corner of the peninsula, and he has you in your corner of the peninsula, and all of us have been invited into God's strategy to tear down walls through prayer and faith and obedience. Engage in this journey here at Coastside. God has this building plan here. And I look forward to hearing battle stories of of God's victories for his name. And all along the way, there's plenty of room for all of us to grow in faith and obedience and have the joy of seeing firsthand, as those Israelites did, to see that wall come down and see God's fame spread. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you've allowed us to see how you work and learn about what is visible and what's happening behind the scenes. And know that you have this perfect plan that you are orchestrating for your kingdom. And we thank you that in your love, you allow us to participate with you. That each of us has a place in that marching line. That each of us has a unique gift and talent made in a very wonderful way to serve you. May we find those places, those walls to walk around. And may you receive the glory. We thank you for the foundation of Jesus. We thank you that our eternity is secure. We thank you that you will never leave us nor forsake us. You are our cornerstone, our strength, our bread of life, our living water. Equip us for the journey. May we always be learning from you. May you grow us, make us more like yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.